Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. I don't know why I do that, but I, I do it sometimes. I think I just don't want you guys to get bored. It's like, I just want to keep these intros fresh for y'all. Uh, I love you. Thanks for being here. And let's get on with today's episode. We are going to be joined by Edward Enemple OBE, where I ask him, how are you styling a more inclusive fashion world? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. If you are someone who enjoys fashion and magazines, sit down, strap in, and don't shit your pants if you're driving to work, because I'd hate for you to show up to work with like poo in your pants. I can't believe I just said that for our guest. Kill me. When we had Monroe Bergdorf on the show, obviously one of our best episodes ever, she spoke so highly of today's guest, and we are so excited that we get to have him on the show. At only 18 years old, he became the world's youngest fashion director of a magazine. Over the last three decades, he's brought gorgeous styling and thoughtful editorial insights to your favorite magazines and led the change for a more diverse, welcoming fashion world. Edward Enenful, OBE, is editor-in-chief of British Vogue. I just got chills on my queer triceps. And the European editorial director of Vogue. More chills now they're on my quads. His new memoir, A Visible Man, is out now. (sighs) And how are you, Edward? You're just like living your best life. I have to stop talking. How are you? I'm good. I've been in New York for a few days and I'm having the best time. I used to live here for 14 years and then I went back to do a British film. But now I'm back to do a week here and it's gorgeous. Most people know who you are, but just for like our friends who are maybe like in Indiana, yeah, not that Indiana people like aren't fashionable. And also if you're American and you didn't know what OBE is and like respectfully, I had to Google it myself. But like that means yeah. the queen herself was literally like, I'm paraphrasing here, but like, you're a bad bitch. You represent the queen, honey. Like, because basically it's like, it's like order of the British empire, empire, honey. So that's like a major thing. It's a good title that goes after your name. It means (sighs) you've done something for your country that's helped other people or, you know, something brought attention to the country. So I was very proud of that. So the OB stands for that. There's several layers of that. And then what I do really is I am... Editor for British Vogue, also European director for Vogue. So what I really do is I I oversee the magazine, the content, the website, entertainment, podcast, like the whole Vogue universe. Jesus Christ. And a British Vogue. That's a lot. That's a lot. (laughs) And then these incredible young editors we have in France, Italy, Spain and Germany. I oversee them. They report in and I kind of guide them a bit. But it's, it's, it's great. And, you know, I have a lot of energy, so... Oh, good. Basically, your day makes yeah. my itinerary schedule look like a like a married <laughs> rich mom of two going to Whole Foods, like just like lackadaisically, just like. I'm sure your schedule's insane. <laughs> but it's like 5 a.m. to 10 p.m. Like you have something to do yes. like all the yes. time. Actually, those are the exact hours. Really? Yeah. And you work till 10 p.m. Yeah. Yeah. And I sleep at 10 p.m. And you look Hopefully. 11 years old. What is going on? It's like, you just have like really good, you know, you must, you must see like all of the good that you're putting into the fashion industry. I feel like the universe is like giving it back to your skin, which is just great. Oh. Like I, I congratulate you on that. Like that is so good for you. And our guiding question is like, how are you styling a more inclusive fashion world? Also, how did you turn out to be such a bad fucking major bitch, honey? How did you get here? What happened? We're so obsessed. So how did I start? Well, I started, I was born in Ghana. West Africa. Yes. 
one of six siblings, grew up with my mom, my mom making clothes, fabulous designs, you know, peplums, waist, you know, African women, headscarves <sighs> to the sky, sleeves. And I just grew up listening and taking in all the gossip, taking in all the, you know, the fierceness of women, really. And then we had to leave the country because um, there was a military coup and my dad was in the military. So we moved to England, penniless, broke, sharing rooms. What year was that? This was 1985. 1985? Yes. It sounds like it's like so far away. <laughs> I mean, but so you're just like a little baby. Little baby, like like 13, little baby. So like little baby teenage Edward and like your parents are just like, we got to go. There is like a full on thing. Like, so that's got to be a little traumatizing for like a young person. Like that's a lot. We had grown up. Sort of very happy, very together. But you know, when you're so young, you don't really know what's going on. It wasn't until we heard that an, one of my dad's cousins had literally been, you know, shot at his breakfast table. We were like, time to get out. And my dad went ahead and sort of got, got things ready. And we went and we went from sort of a kind of a middle class lifestyle to just broke, honey. And you go to London. Yes, London, cold. Freeze in London. I mean, the first time I saw vapor coming out of my brother's mouth, I thought he's just eating eggs. And that's why. <laughs> <laughs> I said the eggs were very strong this morning because I could see a vapor. Because <laughs> <But it was laughs> you had been brought up in this like rich, beautiful culture. Like it's giving texture. It's giving fabrics. It's giving yeah. like this beautiful culture. And then it's warm. Oh, warm every day. Like, warm every day. Is there beaches? Oh, yeah. We lived up to the beach. You know, it, it was so different. And then the next minute, we're wearing coats. We're wearing jackets. We what a culture shock. Like, you get there. It's like the yeah. like mid-80s. You're like a teenager. You're like adjusting to school. 13 is like the worst. The hormones are raging. Yeah, yeah, it's like such a weird yeah. age. But it's like also you kind of end up in this other epicenter of fashion. There's also like very like intersectional, multinational culture in London. So what happens from 13 to 18? Because you go on to become like the youngest <laughs> director of a fashion. Like that's yeah. a fast five years. Well, I remember, you know, going to school in London and learning, you know, learning to sort of speak the, the Queen's English or however you want to call it, being called all kinds of names. And then I used to have this big afro. And like, you know, what do they call them? Milk bottle glasses, which I still kind of have uh -huh. now. Very proud of them. But I remember I said to my mom, you know, I don't want to wear glasses anymore. I always had bad eyesight. And you remember when they started making contact lenses? There were those hard ones. Yes. And you pop them in your eye and you're, oh. Anyway, I got those. And I was on a train to college. I was 16. And there was a guy staring at me. And I, I was really freaked out. I didn't know why he was staring at me. You know, I, thought, you know, I was so sheltered, by the way. So I thought, am I in trouble? What have I done? It... And then it happens to be that he was a fabulous stylist, Simon Foxton, for ID magazine, which at the time was the bomb. And he worked for Arena in the face. And he gave me his card to be a model. And I, I never even, I, I didn't even know what modeling was. So I told my mom and she was like, no, <laughs> not that industry. <laughs> no, it's a funny industry. I didn't even know what she meant. And I wore her down. So before you knew it, I was kind of modeling for Nick Knight and Simon and got a, you know, a model agency. And then I got into fashion, really. 
And then I was introduced to ID Magazine in those two years while I was going to college, modeling, assisted. Wait, so you're like modeling at the same time as like Gia. So you're just like modeling in like the same era as like the fucking era of the fucking supermodels. Kate, Naomi, all of them. Yeah. Same time period. But the girls were doing much better than the boys. I mean, I did good editorial, but I didn't make any money. And you were just giving like, ha, ha. Do you have any of those like pictures just like framed in your house? No. <laughs> They're in the book though. Okay. You have to buy my book to see those pictures. We have to. I need like one image for like, I just, like we had to like for this, oh, cool. like it's, I'm dying. I got to see this. I, Cause I just, I, these <laughs> angles you're giving me first thing in the morning on a fucking whatever today is. Like I can only imagine what you're giving like the photogs in 1990, honey, get out. Cause a visible man is your first book, right? Yes. And so obviously like you've put out a magazine monthly for years. What was it like writing a visible man? And then what was the difference between like releasing a visible man and then releasing a piece of editorial work as far as like a magazine is concerned? Yeah, I mean, you know, a magazine, you know, you have a structure that's in place. You have a team that's in place, daily meetings, your planning meetings, as we call them. You figure out your issues in advance. So you, you kind of know your deadlines and rhythms. When it comes to writing a book, oh, my God, that's a whole different animal. So, like, sometimes it's easy to put, you know, words down on paper. Sometimes you're so emotional that you need a moment. Sometimes nothing comes. Sometimes you record. Some, I mean, it, it's a, that was a whole different headspace. If anybody says to you putting out a magazine is the same as putting out a book, neither, I had no idea. How hard it I was. I had no idea how hard it was. I remember a friend of mine saying, if you're going to put out a book, make sure you have the time. And, you know, we were in lockdown when I started, so I had a bit of time on my hands, but I wouldn't have been able to if, the, if lockdown hadn't happened. I was just thinking about, like, how long did it take? Like, when did you start? So you started in, like, early-ish 2020? It's like two and a half years, yeah. Yeah, that's a long time. So have you found any joys in being able to have a project that you did get to spend more time with, I would assume with like magazines, it's like, obviously it's Vogue. So it is perfection, but it's like, because it's like a deadline and you're always doing one like every month, it's like, I would assume and correct me if I'm wrong, that you need to like be married to the perfection, but also be willing to like shift and change. Cause like it needs to be on time. But with a memoir, you really can like sit with it a little longer. You have more time to like really perfect your wording. Perfect it. Was that fun for you or did you find that like laborious? Were you like, I don't want to look at this, these groupings of words ever again because I've been doing it for so long? There were fun moments. There were lots of fun moments. But I also knew that I wasn't going to give you like, here's a new kitten heel. Here's a new bow for the head. Like It was more than I think a lot of people thought that was the kind of book that was coming. But I thought if I'm going to write a book, going to be very honest it was going to be sort of you know very in-depth so there were hard moments where you're like i I don't even want to do this anymore but of course you signed a contract so you're gonna do it yes (laughs) when i did my book over the top i'm a survivor of sexual abuse a lot of my recovery has been about like kind of learning to protect my inner child and like learning to like protect myself and like set boundaries for myself in ways that like I wasn't ever able to before. Mm-hmm. So when I wrote that book, a lot of the publishers and team was like, oh, we really want to like use pictures like to kind of illustrate you as like when you were a little kid. And, and I felt really protective and I was oh, like, yeah, go the same. And I was like, I'm just not willing. Like, so I didn't. So over the top has like zero pictures. Did you have that experience or like any trepidation about like 
you are this fashion editor, but then showing this more yeah. vulnerable, raw side of yourself and like yeah. what your actual story was. Were you scared? Yeah. Was your team scared? Like, how did you just do it? I didn't want to do it for so many years. I didn't want to do it. I was like, nobody wanted to hear my story. You know, the fashion industry, you know, it's very beautiful, very surface. But that was your imposter syndrome talking like we, because actually people did want to hear your story. I talk about imposter syndrome in the book. So for me, by the time I came to writing the book, I was there. I'm like, okay, when you get to know me, I'm that kind of person. Sometimes it takes me a while to get, but when I'm there, this is it. Okay, done. Out to the world. That's it. It took me years to get to the point of writing a book. But once I committed, all good. All good. Do you think you'd ever do it again? Do you, do you think you have like other stories that you want to tell? <laughs> They're already asking if I, everyone's already asking if it's a second book. Like, well, because it's good. I know. But that's how you know you're talented, Heidi. And that's how you know that you have like a gift. Because like when they get the first one, they like it's giving empire. It's giving oh. like but, like that like season one empire when you're like, I must have more. Like that <laughs> means that you know that people were like obsessed. And I love that. Yeah. But you know what I love? What I really love is what we're talking about. The vulnerability sort of sharing with people about my imposter syndrome, about my health, my health issues, you know, about growing up sort of you know, black and poor, all those things that people didn't know. For me, people are now saying, God, thank you. We, you know, thank you for seeing us. So for me, that's, it's, it's doing its work. It's doing its work. And your book did its work because I read about all oh. those things you said. And I was like, what an incredible human being. That's what oh. I thought. Thank you. What an incredible human being. And people use the word brave a lot. But for me, it's like, it's just life, isn't it? It's yeah. It's your life. As I've gotten to know Tan and gotten to know my husband, it's been interesting because I do feel like it's this like, um, idea, especially in like the US that like racism didn't like exist in the ways that it does here over there that like the United Kingdom is this like post racial world. Like, oh, Europeans, like they don't do that there. Like it's like, it's <laughs> like, it's like Shikar or something. They all but, live in castles. What was that like for you navigating this fashion industry? Cause I would uh, think that there was a lot of people in the industry that you have heard know a lot. Like that on your way yes. to becoming the editor oh, of yes. British yes. Vogue, like you can't do it, you won't be able to do it. Like what was overcoming that systemic oppression like? I mean, I always say you know, my favorite question was always why. When people say, you know, you can't do it, why? We always did this way, you go, why? So it was like, why can't we change things? For me growing up, I was sort of the only one. I mean, I had Andre Yontali to look up to, but for me, he lived in America. It was so far away. And I had to really navigate fashion in the 90s on my own and, and make mistakes and learn from them and work on ID magazine. But really made sure at the time that I knew everything about a magazine, everything from styling covers to writing features, the art department, like I learned on the job. So that, you know, when people told me, you know, I... I I, I would always be able to push back. But what it did was, you know, I worked 10 times as hard as everybody. You know, that's the kind of background you come from when you're an immigrant. And there were a lot of no's and a lot of pushbacks. But when you're young and you have the energy, you always pick yourself up and you push on. And sometimes some incidents were tough to deal with as an 18-year-old being told, you know, you know, there's no room for black people here. There's no room for black people there. You know, unconscious biases that I had to deal with. And sometimes, you know, not even unconscious, just straight up. Um, you're not right for this job. And, you know, I just powered through. I just powered through. But I also had some great friends, you know, Naomi Campbell, who was doing the same thing in her industry. 
My friend Pat McGrath, the makeup artist who was doing the same ah, thing in the industry. Oh, ah, the makeup artist yes. as if we as if I I yeah. would literally like <laughs> like like I would take my queer body and I would like hammer it into the asphalt if there were a puddle for her to like walk over my back. Do you know what I'm saying? Like the iconery of literally Pat Lucky McGrath, so major, her red lip, like it's the best red the lip red of all lip. time. It's like the so eye, the red uh, lip. Get out of my face, my Pat McGrath. She's so fucking major. So that is like, there's no room for black people here. Yeah, but we found our community. But we found a little community. But no, hundred percent. But I mean, for someone to say that to someone with a straight face, like it's like you said, like that's not even unconscious. Like that's just like conscious, deliberate, like <laughs> racial bias. But you know, I also, I was also luckier the most because I had the magazine. So I'm like, I'm just going to show the world as I saw it. You know, this colors, beauty, shades, whatever you want to call it, and. So I was very lucky to have a platform from a very young age and then went on to, of course, Italian Vogue. and Oh, Italian Vogue, get out. Vogue US and W. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Like when I was growing up in America in the age of like um, Defensive Marriage Act, like don't ask, don't tell. Like I was born in 87. I, you know, was raised in rural America, like through like the Clinton administration and then like the Bush administration. And I remember back then just like how much homophobia there was. I remember thinking like, this is never going to get better. I'll never be able to be married. Like my adult life is never going to be what I want it to be. On one hand, I thought it's never going to get better. But then there's this other part where you're like, oh, maybe it will. You have to have hope. And then we do experience progress. And then just to set the stage for listeners, that Liz Trust lady like just took over for Boris. It's like a more conservative government than ever. I see people in America like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, these like really ultra right wing conservatives. And one thing that scares me about those type of people is like they're not older. They're not like 60 or 70. Like they're my age. Like there are age boxes. So there's just like that duality of like there can be progress and regression at the same time. But how do you deal with those setbacks? How do you deal with like keeping a positive outlook? Is it just by like focusing on what you're passionate about? Like how do you keep putting one foot in front of the other? I mean, basically I've, I've dealt with this my whole life. Black, gay, working class. I mean, so for me, this is just another chapter in the world. But what I know is that you're not going to stop me and you won't stop progress. You won't stop progress. Yes, there will always be these regressions. They'll come and go. And they have, they've, they've, they've come and go through history, but we will keep moving forward. And that for me is the one thing I strongly believe. Like there's an attack on wokeism right now. I'm like, I don't even know what that word means because... My whole life has been about let's just move forward. I didn't have the luxury of sitting and looking back at what a wonderful world we lived in. I was always aware that somebody was going to attack, you know, attack who I was, essentially. So, you know, you're always on alert, but you have to look forward. You You can't let people stop you. You can't let people bring you down. You have to have your inner belief and you have to keep moving forward. And being vocal, essentially. Mm. Okay, I'm obsessed. I, I love. But in Invisible Man, it's it is a memoir. It's it's your story, and it's also a history of fashion, specifically fashion in London and New yes. York. From from it's like very the, fashion, which we love. You got to give us fashion. Yeah. What was it like to like periodize your life through different style eras in writing about it? <laughs> it was so funny because. Yeah, I remember the sort of late 80s when things were very different, fashions were very different. 
London was very different. You know, it wasn't so international fashion when I started. There was a New York scene, the London scene, and it was a thing in Paris. And what I realized was, my God, how many wonderful people I had grown up with. So many incredible people. Nana Cherry, um, you know, Kate Moss, Naomi Campbell, um, incredible people. And then, you know, like recently people like Rihanna, Beyonce. And the fact that I've been able to be a part of pop culture or witness pop culture so close is incredible. I never thought I would. I never thought I'd see any of this, you know, when, I, when we landed in London. And then next minute, it's a whirlwind. <laughs> like a Cinderella story. Only because it's coming in my brain three times and I'm going off script again. I hate myself for doing it, but I can't, I can't help it. Do what you gotta do. The HBO made-for-TV movie, Gia, starring Angelina Jolie about, like, you know, I Gia. Love Gia. So, like... Did you know her? She was before. Before. Yeah. She was like the same generation as Iman and Janet Dickinson. Janet Dickinson was a major model. One time, one time, this is a literal true story. One time when I was an assistant in Beverly Hills, I was an assistant at Joseph Martin Salon, and I went to Starbucks to get coffee for my client. And well, actually my boss's client. It wasn't Mike's, I was an assistant. But anyway, I was standing there, and then I feel this tap on my shoulder, and I turn around. It's Janice Dickinson. Oh, wow. (laughs) And so we're like looking at each other, and I was just like, I love you on AMTM so much, I can't even stop it. Like, I love you so much. Like, your sty story (laughs) is like, I tell it to everyone like eight times a week, like, I love you so much. And I went like this like to be like I love you and then she started like combing my arm hair and she was like look how hairy your arms are and I was like are you okay and then she was like I'm great I'm getting my extensions redone I'm having a good day it was the best 10 minutes of my 21 year old life I have (laughs) ever actually I was like 22 but it was like the best day of my life I love Janice Dickinson she's so fun no, she's just iconic. I love her so much. She's major. So all of those people. So, but in the Gia movie, you know that part when they're like, when no one knew that she passed away? Was that true? Like, people just really didn't know that she passed away for like a whole year? <laughs> I mean, I think my might be a bit of an exaggeration. But you know what used to happen then? People used to disappear. You know that, right? No. Um, well, back when I was growing up, in the club scene, when people sort of got sick, you know, whether it was... HIV, they disappeared back to their family homes. Uh, and you were like, I have, what happened to James? What happened to John? And then what? Did you see a, a TV show by Russell T. Davis? The, um, it's, it's a sin? Yes. It's yes, a sin. All of it. Yeah. It was incredible. That, that, that was a real story. But people uh, would disappear. And then the families would be like, all right, you're back now. And you wouldn't hear. You wouldn't hear anything. Oh my God, that is like just no. such intense trauma. I'm driving back into my questions. I'm sorry, I freaked out and like went on the Gia off course, but I just, <laughs> I mean, on, and also too, like I should have known this, but it's like, you're, uh, I mean, the, you're just giving such 28, you're giving such 32 who just like has been working since you were like six oh. that like I, it's hard for me to get through my head that you could have ever worked in like even close to the eras, you know what I'm saying? Because you just look like you're all of like 12 and a half years old, which I love oh, that for you. So I always get really excited when like good people like look like that. Like when like good people are hot, like it's Thank great. You. Like it makes me happy that it like didn't befall on someone who's not cute or like not cute on the inside, <laughs> but they're cute on the outside, you know? So I just, I love that for you. So I tend to count time in Olympic cycles. Like I'll be like, that was the Michelle Kwan era. Like that was like the Katarina Vitt era. Do you do that with fashion? And if so, what was like your favorite moment? I mean, for me, you know, I always talk about the 90s because the 90s was when I came to. The 90s was when I I was fashion director for ID. It's when we looked at all that had gone on in the 80s, the big hair. And we were like, we don't want this. We want grunge. 
we want, we want, you know, something new, something that represents our age. So, you know, we did all these sort of, you know, CK obsession ads, Kate Moss, you know, lanky hair, tank tops, Corinne Day. So that was Amon Pat McGrath. We all came from that time. We all came from London at the same time, but we wanted something that we, we were like, we were like 20, what, in the late teens, early 20s, all of us. So we wanted this whole grunge movement to reflect our reality. So then it went out into the world and it became something else. But that was a very exciting time. Y2K was good too, because then I was a bit older. Turning it out for Italian Vogue, back to back with Stephen Mizell, plastic surgery. Stephen Mizell! Black issue. Ah, ah. Y2K, bitch. That was like very, when I think Y2K, I think entrapment. I think Catherine Zeta-Jones, I think Red Lasers, I think Sean Connery, I think about them sexualizing her body when she was like swimming in the ocean and they were like, what size do you think she is? And she was like, she's probably six and she looked damn good in a four. And it was like, gross. But at the time you're like, this is great. I can't, that is, okay. I do have like another off script question, but you can just like blink twice if you don't want to answer it. Has there ever been a time in your whole career where like, let's say you were going to have somebody on a cover and it was like already shot, but then they like get, like there's like some fucking like army hammer level, like they are fucking like eating shit or like there's like a video of them like just doing something really fucking intense and like, like a week before it goes, like, and we don't need to know who, like I don't want to do that, but has that ever happened where you had to like yank someone off a cover because they like did something really fucking bad and you knew it was going to be like bad for the magazine? Yes. (sighs) And it wasn't once either. No! You know what? And it can happen any minute. It can happen next month. It can happen the month after. You just have to be prepared. That's the world of magazines. Has it happened more than the count times that you can count on two hands? Like, have you had to, like, pull no, a no, cover? No, no, no. 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 no more than so it's like a rarity. It's like a yeah. rarity. Yeah. And did your stomach and your heart drop through your butthole? Was it, like, as bad as you <laughs> thought it would be? Or was it, like... Or, like, did you land on your feet? Do you just do, like, a last-minute photo shoot with someone else? When you work for a magazine, you have to learn to pivot. Remember in lockdown, when we didn't have any staff, we didn't have any... Yes. And we had to create issues. Judy Dench on the cover, the activism, the activism yes. cover. The, the, the essential workers cover. So you must learn to pivot. So I always cover myself. I always think you never know. I'm really paranoid like that because, you know, I, I've always been like, nothing is forever. So I'm always covering my back. So if one cover gets pulled... Trust me, another one will, will, will appear. And not that I, like, am asking because, like, I want to be on a cover uh, someday, but if I did, when you guys are, like, <laughs> like ideating on, like, what the covers are going to be, is there, like, uh, one who you, okay, that's going to be, like, my that's my first choice, but then this is, like, a backup in case they're busy, and, like, that's, like, a third backup, and then maybe that one, if, like, the third one isn't available, like, we can do a feature on them or something. Like, how, or, or is there, like, someone who's, like, have your heart set on? I'm really so paranoid about about things falling through that I make sure I have contracts in place. Uh-huh. You know, I, book my covers, I book my covers in advance. I don't wait for this month. I book it in advance, like six months in advance. I mean, you know, sometimes things can change. So you don't really do a backup. There's always a backup because when you give uh-huh. yourself that much time, you've, you've shot in advance. So if uh-huh. things need to move around, you can do it. So I don't wait last minute to panic. I'm like, okay, this one was meant for this month, but let's do a little flip. Let's, you know, anything's, anything's possible. Okay, here's this other thing that happened to me this one time and like tell me if anything's ever happened like this to you. Okay, this one time I was on a TV show, but I'm not going to say who or what or anything. But this one time I was on this TV show, I was doing hair on it, I wasn't on it. So this is like, it was like way before Queer Eye. And so I was standing next to the manager of the host on the show. And then this other guy came up to us and basically said to me and the host manager, 
what has that host done to their face? They look this, they look that. And I was standing with the makeup artist and we both looked at each other and made the face that you just made. Like I was like, like my hand just came oh my up to my God. face. And then the makeup artist was like, she just whispered to me. She was like, I'm 50 years old and this is the most mortified I've ever been in my life. Like she whispered that to me. And then we both just looked at the manager to be like, what's going to happen? And then the manager literally just like looked over and was like, security. And then like the security guard came over and the manager was like, this person needs to be removed. And he was the assistant no. director. He was the assistant director of the whole shoot Bye. and got, got Bye. fired, like fired Bye. at like 1130 PM. People need to have empathy. People need empathy. You never know what people are going through. What is like leaving names out? But like, what is like the cringiest, worst? Because that to me is like my top one most embarrassing story of like, yeah, that's my top one most embarrassing story. Like, I've never seen anything worse. It was like watching a car wreck where no one tell us. When you read my book, Invisible Man, there's an incident where I'm working with one of the biggest stars in the world. And I've been so excited. I've gone out of my way to get the clothes from Paris, Couture. And I'm so excited. She walks into the studio. I'm like, can you come to the dressing room? She gets to the entrance of the dressing room and says, I hate everything. I'm like, oh, do you want to try one? I don't even want to come into the room. I hate everything. So the whole studio is looking at me. I am mortified. And then I try to follow her into the dressing room and she turns around and she says, stylist, get out and stay out. And the whole day wouldn't talk to me. <laughs> so my assistant had to do the shoot. This was years ago when oh. I was a stylist. Oh no, that's, that's intense. And so that's like a don't ever meet your heroes thing because they might yeah, like... Yeah. And did they ever apologize? Now they're very nice to me. This person is so nice to me but hasn't put together that I was that same kid. One day we'll have that conversation. And in the book, do you name the person? No, because no. I think I feel like Silas should also have a code. You know, you should have to keep discretion. I only ever worked with stylists like as a hairdresser. You know, like I never had one, but I've basically been with the same one since the beginning of Queer Eye because I love her so much. I would like walk good. in front of a bus for her. Like I love her so much. But we have such a good like we just have such a good thing. Like stylists are just so the coolest, most amazing. They got beat up a lot on. She's the photographer. You know, the, oh, yeah, that's sometimes true. The clients, sometimes the client's not so nice. Sometimes, you know, it's a, it, it takes a lot of fortitude. There is so much wisdom in the book. I mean, just so much. But one moment that struck me and that I think it applies across industries is when you described how you long saw yourself as, quote, of service to the talent rather than the talent yourself. Yeah. Can you describe that distinction? Yeah, I mean, you know, when you're a stylist, you're behind the scenes. You're always there for the celebrity or the model. You know, you're there to do what they want, what the photographer wants. And it's never about you, you know. I'd always wear black clothes. So, you know, I wouldn't sort of suck up attention in the studio. Only when I was working. But, you know, you were, you were like, basically, what do we call it? You were of service. So when, the, when digital sort of, when Twitter started and Instagram started and I started sort of finding a community of people who loved my work and had been following me. That was a really, that was a game changer. Mm. Like, oh my God. Silas can actually, you know, step out hairdressers, makeup artists, all these sort of people who are always, probably the lowest on any shoot, can actually step forward. It was a great time. It was a great moment. 
So how did you balance that when you were styling? And then as you like come up in your career and you get like more senior and more major and your opinion like starts to pull more weight. Like what if you like had pulled something that the photographer liked and the, the talent liked, but you like secretly hated it or just thought something else would look way better? Like I didn't I didn't hope that. You didn't. Also, the older you get, the less patience you kind of have with those <laughs> kind of situations. It's like, no, yes, no. <laughs> Especially when you're working on fashion shows with designers. It's like, no. That's not, you know, you just learned, like, it's better to be straight up and honest. Mm. But, like, that wasn't, like, a, like overnight thing. Like, you kind of, like, learned no, no, how to no, find no, your ways. Because no. in the beginning, you're like, oh, my God, you know, I'm making... I'm making money. I'm talking about freelance styling. I'm making money, so I can't. And then as you grow older, you're like, actually, I'm here for a reason, not just to put clothes on, but to have a point of view. And really, I'm more as a creative director, so that's why my career sort of turned around. Your resume is so fucking major. Like, it is just so <laughs> fucking major. Like, it, it is like, it yeah. really gives me chills all over my gay body. I love it. So I love oh. the book, how you, like, describe this, like, beautiful, vivid group of friends and people that you have collaborated with. And we, we talked a little bit about some of them, but like, can you introduce us to some of like the other folks that you mentioned in the book and like what collaborations from that era are you the most proud of? I mean, I'm proud of the work I did with photographer Craig McDean. And it would be me, Craig McDean, Pat McGrath. We did so many wonderful stories for ID Magazine. Then we went on to Italian Vogue. And then W Magazine, the work I've done with Stephen Mizell in the 2000s, you know, Linda in, in plastic surgery, mm. story, um, so many incredible stories, you know, Franca Sanzani. So that was really good. Naomi and Kate, I've styled more times than, than I can even remember. <laughs> Do you watch Making the Cut? It's on Amazon with like Heidi Klum and Tim Gunn and Naomi's a judge on it. And it's... So good. Naomi's so fucking good in it. I think if they upgraded her from judge, but then I was thinking, I bet they don't because she's probably too busy. Like, she's probably like, bitch, I don't have fucking time so to come busy. over there for she's But so it's like, busy. she is so. She's so good on TV. And she's just so funny. Like, she's so. Her quip. What about her modeling show? Oh, I, oh my God. It was so. But that was like, I feel like that was like wrong time because America yeah. was so basic and they were so basic for Tyra, even though like, I. Do love ANTM. I can't help it. Well, seasons like one through 10. But that was like really a modeling show. We got to go. But I'm getting away from there. Okay. So here's the other thing. I also love learning more about your creative process, including how you approach styling as character driven work, which is really interesting to me because when I first started doing Queer Eye, my friend Denise Badeau is like this like fierce model. And I was like, girl, I don't know how to do photo shoots. Like I'm a hair stylist. Like I don't know how to, like I have four poses. Like I've watched ANTM for 15 years. But I don't know how to pose. <laughs> and she was like, in your head, Jonathan, you need to think about like what the clothes are and then play a character. So like you're not yourself yes, on yes. camera. Like if that skirt is making you feel flowy, <laughs> yes, you're Cinderella bitch. If you're feeling really masculine, like give them like architecture give them like butch like you're a silent movie star like a silent movie star the yes. best models always are how do you teach someone to be character driven in their work for me you know Max, my work is so researched the characters are so researched so let's say if I'm doing a 1920s inspired character I have so much references to show you I have locations and then I will talk to you as this is the character, the character will do this, will do that, like a movie, like a silent movie. And then a great model or a great personality knows how to interpret it. Because you're that person in that time, in that moment. So I think modeling really is a bit like, it's like acting without, mm. without speaking. 
you know, but really the research is key. Like I will give you so much about the character that like there's no way you won't be that character on set. And even it goes right down to the music you play on set. Ah. Right? The music you play on set, you know, the clothes obviously play a big part, hair and makeup play a big part, but the mood is also really important. The set. The mood. The mood, yeah. Yes. Like, like I'll give an example. Like Kate Moss, when you're shooting Kate and if you're playing, like she's playing a rock and roll character, she won't play rock and roll music. That's a bit too much of a cliche. She'll probably listen to blues or something. So that's a bit of an, something at odds, something at play. So just because you're playing a disco character doesn't mean you have to have disco music on. Just little things like that. Ah. So it's like to evoke the feeling as opposed to like hitting the feeling right on the head. Like you're evoking exactly. something. Exactly. I love that. You mentioned the concept of Silas Own, a collection in the book. Can you remind us what that term means? Back in the day, you know, um, we didn't really like using designer clothes. So you you pull a designer clothes. It's very different from now where we love designer clothes and designers are so different. But back then, you had, you'd go and collect your own pieces from them, whether it's from vintage stores or, you know, just things you, you, your, your parents get. And then you, those will make the final picture. So let's say we're doing a shoot and I have this beautiful necklace that I found in the market that becomes stylist own. Or we find a hat that's vintage, it's not available in designer stores, that becomes stylist own. So it was very popular back, back then. So you see, hat from, I don't know, T-shirt from Cafe Hamnet, short, stylist own. So that became part of the language of the time. Is there any, like, standout pieces from your personal collection of, like, stylist own that you just, like, love, look back on, or just, like, your, like, your most treasured pieces? Oh, I know. There, was, there used to be a store called World in London in the late 80s, early 90s, and, you know, the, the, the people who owned it would travel around the world and find... You know, they'll find African braces, they'll find necklaces from India, they'll find, you know, I don't know, feathers from America. So I collected so many pieces from men and they made up my shoes back then. So I've still got all of those. Wild. I love that. When I was in Tokyo, I got to like live in Tokyo for a month um, when we got to shoot like Queer Eye Japan. And there's like these amazing vintage stores there. Queer Eye was amazing, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. But I got this. I found this like Celine bag from like the like mid 80s that like I love so much. It's like I take it everywhere. It's like one of my very favorite things. That's stylish on. My stylist, Allie B, always says, um, the first time I ever heard that, like a term like that was when she was like, model zone. Cause like I would go into a shoot and like they wouldn't <laughs> have anything that I, like that would fit. That's a good one. Yeah. Too. So she would say like model zone cause it would be like my t shirt dress or be like the thing I wore to the shoot. And they'd be like, can we just use that? Um, so I have one more question before our rapid fire sure. round. So I come from a newspaper background. Like my family owned newspapers. I grew up like in newsrooms and like on advertising floors. I grew up like running around the layout department, the photography department, like bothering yeah, everyone. That's what I mean. Um, it just like was such a beautiful time for me. And I, my family's newspaper, actually the whole broadcast company, they sold last year and our hometown newspaper has been shuttered. Like there is no more physical paper. And if you'd have told me when I was five or 10, like growing up running around, like I used to rollerblade around that like print machine and like just wreak havoc in that paper. Wow. What a great childhood. It's amazing, but I can't believe that like there isn't one there. And as we see, I mean, there's 
I don't think there is ever a world where like Vogue, British Vogue or any of the Vogues, like where like I just I literally can't imagine it. But the print industry as a whole is just going through this like mega shift. Do you have any predictions for like where are we in a hundred years? Like a really long time. Like when we are like figments of people's imaginations from long times <laughs> past, like where do you think print works into our future. And also, if that's like a weird thing to ask, because you're like, like we like don't have to answer it. No, you can no, you can add it because now I said you know, even in 2017, I inherited a magazine, but now I run a brand, and that brand includes a printed magazine that probably is going to get more and more beautiful. Maybe it might be less frequency. It becomes a coffee table object, but that powers video, podcast, audio, events, content. You can't see print in isolation anymore. So that's the future. And for me, with somebody who has so much energy, it's so exciting. Because, you know, a lot of people, a lot of Vogue readers approach the magazine first through their digital platform. They're like, ah, Vogue, a whole new generation. So the print will be there, but as this incredible, treasured piece that would drive a whole ecosystem. So you're not nervous about that? Like, it's, we're not nervous. That's no. just like, it's like a gorgeous evolution. Yeah, it's an evolution. It's an evolution, definitely. <sighs> Also, no. not to name drop, but at the Emmys this past weekend, I got to wear my first time ever, like, loner jewels. Like, I've never had, like, loner jewels before. Really? But my stylist, Allie B, like, she knows these people in L.A. And they, like, do, like, those big, gorgeous, like, rich, slut, like, Fantastic. fucking crazy jewels. And I got to wear this 11-carat fucking diamond wow. ring for, like, five hours. And guess who the only other person that's ever worn that ring was? Who was it? Anna fucking went to her. <laughs> so we got to wear the same ring. You're both, you're both icons. I mean, in different respects. Like I was like, I, I feel bad that my like cornfield finger is like, like where, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's, just, it's fine. So as we wrap up, are you into maybe a little um, fashion rapid fire round? Of course. Of course. And we go rounding out our gorgeous episode, which like this has like been some of like the most exciting like fifty four minutes of my life. Like I just oh, I've had so much fun you. with you. So okay, fashion rapid fire. Favorite cover shoot. Favorite cover shoot. Oh my god, there's been so many. I think I really, really love the shoot we did with the essential workers in lockdown when we put this the nurse at the bus driver and the girl who worked in the supermarket, because these were people who were out there putting their lives on the line for us every day they left the house. So, you know, that's really special to me. Fuck yes, I love that so much. Most recent source for inspiration? Most recent source for inspiration? I mean, I'm always, I'm always on, like, on, you know, TikTok, YouTube, <laughs> I like what's going on on TikTok, actually. So that's what we see. Yeah, there's so much there. Favorite snack while working? Snickers, chocolate oh, yes. bar. Delicious. Um, a fashion trend you wish would come back? Fashion trend I wish would come back. Always, always a big fan of the 1940s. Oh, yeah, that's right. Silhouette, Blade Runner, you know, Sean Young. Fuck yes. A fashion trend you wish would stay in the past? Another another seventies flower power moment. I don't know if I can handle. Okay, I'm never wearing print around. Note to self. Okay, um, <laughs> a shoot, a shoot that turned out amazing, but almost didn't happen. Shoot that turned out amazing, but almost didn't happen. Maybe that maybe. Oh my God, Naomi Campbell shoot for 
the black issue of Italian Vogue, the cover shoot, because I was stuck somewhere, missed the flight, because I was running from one job to another, and had to get to LA from New York. And somehow the next day when I flew in, I was able to still make the shoot. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that was, a, and I've never missed a flight in my life. So. Never? That was close. Not really. That's like really perfect. Like that's how, okay, that's like a note of success, like on time, honey. Um. Oh, person you'd love to collaborate with next. Person I'd love to collaborate with next. My God, too many to mention. Um, I'm trying to think of like, do you watch Hacks? Do you have Hacks in England? H-A-C-K? No. Yeah. S. Is it the one about the comedian in... Like, yes, in, um... yes, yes. Oh, I've seen yes. it. I'm going to suggest, not that you asked, but Jean Smart. I love her. She's genius. She's like fierce. Like she's having like, such a renaissance and she's like such a wide spectrum actress. Like she can do hardcore comedy, but hardcore drama. She's just like really beautiful. Oh. I love her. It's like a really brilliantly funny show. Did you see Mayor of Easttown? I love Mary of Easttown. Mary of Easttown's so good. Yeah, this is one of my favorite TV shows. That is the same woman as Kate Winslet's mom in Mare of Easttown. No that way. Is, that is the same actress. Wow. The Her comedian range. Las Vegas. Yes. Comedian in Las Vegas. Incredible. That is like that lady with like the bad hip who's like, you know, yeah. Mare's mom and she's kind of down on her luck and she's like helping Mare's kid, you know? She's like, it's like kind oh, of grunge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the same actress. I just, she Incredible. really floored me. She's major. I'm obsessed with her. She's going to seek her out. She can do so much character work for you, honey. Like she'll give you such a range. Um, okay. uh, item in your closet that would surprise people. That would surprise people. Uh, Jalaba. What's that? A Moroccan robe. Ah, that doesn't surprise me. That sounds really chic. I was thinking I something like, well, yeah, it sounds like amazing. It's like, it's like really cool. My, my wardrobe is all black and white clothes. What is the best part? This is our final one. Actually, no, there is one after this, but this is major. What's the best part of being friends with Rihanna? Like you've been in the same room as her. Like you know her. Like you're like, like what's the best oh, part? She's, she's, she's such a great friend. She's always there when you need her. She's so kind. She's badass. She's everything you, she's everything you think she is. Uh, but really I, kind, really kind. I love her. What's your favorite TV shows right now? I'm loving Surface, Apple TV, Google and Butter Raw. She plays this woman who who falls off a boat and loses her memory. <gasps> that sounds amazing. Writing it down. Um, did you see Severance? When you remove yourself from work, right? Yeah. You remove yourself from is it good? It's amazing. The first three episodes are like a little slow. Don't you find it's always the first three episodes? Always a bit. Yeah, but it's like the finale is like not to oversell it, but it's like one of the best finales of all time. It's like so good. You're giving me a lot in this conversation. You would also like Big Boys. Our really good friend Jack wrote it. Um, Jack is uh, Jack is really good friends with Nicola Coughlin from Bridgerton and Dairy Girls. Okay. And who actually... You should work with Nicola. It's like Nicola oh, Coughlin. Nicola. Like, she comes to uh, my event. Uh, please. Like, event. Just, like, so I'm sweet. like her unofficial PR person, but like, you know who would look great on the cover of British Vogue? Like who would just look she's great amazing. on there? I mean, she's her amazing. little face. Can you imagine her cute little like, uh, uh. She's, she's amazing. she give you like so much fashion. So we love her. We love Bridgerton. Yeah, we love all the TV. Uh, to wind down on a note of queer joy, Monroe said that your wedding was incredible and that we'd have to ask you for details ourselves. And the spirit of celebration, and because it's in the book, can you share any highlights with us? Or like, what was like the most special moment for you in the wedding? I mean, of course, the most special moment was sort of standing there with my husband. We've been together for 20 years and sharing our vows. But most people said it looked like a rap battle. Because <laughs> I went, and he went, he killed it. And then, of course, there's that moment that I write about in the book when 
my friend Emma, Emma Way Methamastroness of Bath was conducting the cer- ceremony and says, if there's anyone in this room who's got something to say, please say it now. You know, I'm paraphrasing. And in walks Rihanna, full of liar, pregnant. That was a moment. And then my friend Natasha Punuala had this dress on that was like a cloud. I mean, it was the most incredible Schiaparelli dress. Wait, so you're telling me that when the officiator of the wedding said, like, does anyone have anything to say? Like, speak now or forever, hold your peace. And then fucking Rihanna. Doors open. <laughs> Looking incredible. That That's has probably, you're, that, you must, I'm speechless. It's hard for me to not have words. I think that, <laughs> that you must be the only person in history who's ever had Rihanna, like, cameo on there. I mean, not only did she cameo, she was like there for the whole time, but like the, I don't think, I mean, that must be the only time in history that's ever happened, like ever. Like, <laughs> Probably. That is so fucking cool. Oh, thank you. It was fun. Oh my was God. Fun. So last question, I swear to God, finally, there's a quote from the book that I think captures your yes. contributions to the world really beautifully. Black people should see themselves in fairy tales, you say as they should be seen everywhere else in culture. What does that statement mean to you? It means that, you know, but, you know, a lot of times in fairy tales and history, black people are always erased. And it would be nice, you know, I, mean, I think it's happening now with this colorblind cast thing like Bridgerton and you know, lots of other TV shows where black people are just there. They're visible, you know, they're a part of history and... Um, I really, really love them. I mean, I did a Pirelli calendar based on Alice in Wonderland, where there was an all-black cast, you know, Whoopi Goldberg, RuPaul, my favorite. And it was a beautiful thing. So, you know, black people need to, black kids especially growing up, need to see themselves reflected. Oh. I always say this, if you can see it, you can be it. So. Oh. oh, my God. I just can't think of a possibly better way to end that episode than on that note. Oh. Edward, thank you so much for your time, for your genius, for your talent. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed myself. And I've been dying to meet you too. I've been dying to meet you. Were always like my, whenever I used to watch the show, you were like, I'm like, that's my best friend, but he doesn't know it yet. Um, now I do. And we will be taking this <laughs> silly computer screen out from betwixt us in future so we can meet in real life. Definitely. Because you're literally in New York for Fashion Week, like as we speak. Yeah, it's going on right now. Like I could die that you took your time for us on such a like momentous occasion like we are so grateful for you you are so thank beautiful you, you are so major thank you. thank you so much for coming and getting curious we love you Edward we have to have you back thank you I'll be back you've been listening to Getting Curious with me Jonathan Van Ness my guest this week was Edward Edenful OBE You'll find links to his work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend, honey, and show them how to subscribe. It's hard to find all those buttons sometimes. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJBN. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Zara Krim. 